Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. So let's get into the word this morning. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And uh, we're going to dive in, and I'm not sure where we're going to land. But we're just going to jump in here, and we'll see where, where the word takes us. But I want to look at a, a theme. I, I almost spoke on this last week, but I really felt like we needed to wrap up our, our series from, that we'd been, been in. And now I want to kind of bridge the two. We're going to move into something else. But I want to look at Romans chapter 8. If you want to look with me at verse 18. Verse 18. I'll tell you what, let's, let's start in verse 17. Or verse 16. Let's go to Genesis 1.1. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, and listen to this, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. That's, I know that's not a hallelujah word right there. But he said we're heirs with him and shares with him in the glory, comma, if we share in his suffering. Then verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The picture that Paul is using is like scales. And if you, to take, the, you take the present suffering and then you, the future glory it's, it's going to produce, then the scale, the, the, the suffering just lifts in the air. There, there's no comparison compared to what God is going to... He's going to use our present pain to develop future glory. You are being glorified. Uh, in the, later on in this passage, Paul says, to those whom God foreknew... He predestined who he predestined. He justified who he justified. He glorified. And so we're in this, this process. We've been justified as a past event, but we're being glorified. It's a process. God is taking us from glory to glory. Now, Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist and philosopher, and uh, he was the first president of Princeton. He, he was really the father of the first great awakening in this nation before we were even a nation and a tremendous revivalist, he wrote this. He said, grace is glory begun, glory is grace consummated. In other words, our being glorified, that the seed of that was planted in our human spirit the day you were born again, the day you were saved, you began the glorification process. And so grace is glory begun, but glory is grace consummated. So the, the summation of the grace of God in your life is he's taking you to glory. So when we talk about being glorified, it, it's just a fancy word for saying that we're being transformed into his image, we're being discipled, we're maturing, we're being transformed into the image of the Son. So uh, he's glorifying us. He says, so the present suffering that we're, we're uh, experiencing is not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed in us. And then he says this, verse 19, for the creation waits an eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Many translations 
Translate that word futility as frustration, subjected to frustration. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption or decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So he's saying that our glorification, our liberation is going to also be the liberation of planet earth. And Paul says that all of creation is groaning and longing and waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, you and I. For you and I to step into our fullness, not just our born-again experience. We've been talking about how we must not reduce salvation to forgiveness. We've got to understand that salvation includes freedom and maturity, that we're to manifest the image of our Father. We are partakers of the divine nature. We are his children. People are supposed to be able to say, hey, what's God like? Well, look at his kids. Because we've been transformed into his image. And so salvation must not be reduced to mere forgiveness. Well, we're forgiven, but we keep acting like we used to. No, we're forgiven and we're being transformed into the image of the Son. And so we're forgiven, we're moving into freedom, we're being glorified. And so he says that all of creation is waiting on that, that expression of the Godhead through the children of God. It's an interesting thought. I don't fully know what Paul means by that. I think your pets are waiting for you to act more like Jesus. Our gardens, all of life is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. They really are. That's what Paul says here. All of creation has been subjected to frustration. And that frustration includes you and I. I think our pet's frustration is with us. Nature's frustration with us. But we've been subjected to that frustration. And it's been, we've been subjected to frustration by the one who subjected us to frustration. Now, some people will translate that saying that Adam and Eve subjected the earth to frustration or Satan subjected to the, the earth to some frustration. That's not what the text is saying because it says that we were subjected to frustration, comma, in hope. The enemy is not trying to produce hope. He's not, he's not subjecting us to frustration in hope. And neither did Adam and Eve subject planet Earth to frustration in hope. It was God who subjected us to frustration in hope. What is that hope? He goes on, he says, in hope that the creation itself would be liberated or be set free from its bondage to corruption or decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And we know that all the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So he says that there's a global groan that's going on, waiting for the purposes of God to be revealed. It's an interesting thought. That nature itself is interceding. Nature itself is groaning in anticipation, longing for the sons of God to be revealed. Nature reacts to sin and nature reacts to righteousness. Nature reacts to revival. Many of you, I'm sure, have seen those. Uh, there was a series of videos that came out a number of years ago. George Otis Jr. put out transformation videos. How many of you saw those? And you saw the ones out of Guatemala. 
uh, I, I want to say it was Alamanga, Guatemala. It was a little village in Guatemala, a little city, and it had four or five jails. And they were always full. They had, and as a matter of fact, they were shipping prisoners out to other villages because it was such a problem with alcohol. There were, they, were, they worshipped this. It was syncretism between Catholicism and this worship of this pagan death god. And, and they would sacrifice to it. And it was just a lot of drunkenness, a lot of, just a mess, the whole place. And there was this little church that began to intercede and cry out for revival. And lo and behold, it hit. And now you go into that city and there's Holy Ghost gas station, Jesus Christ grocery store, you know, the glory of God, shoe repair. I mean, everything is Christian. 85% of the population are now born again. And they said that the, the jails are no longer occupied. Matter of fact, they've closed, they only have one left and then they, it's used for people from other villages that they send to their, their community. But the real interesting thing is scientists began to fly in from around the world because of this agricultural phenomena. They were growing carrots that were as big as a man's thigh. I mean, the fruit was huge. And it used to be that a couple of trucks a week would you know, leave the village. Now they had fleets of Mercedes-Benz trucks that the farmers purchased with their own money. And they're, they're just producing fruit and vegetables that are going out all over the world. And it's an amazing thing. And they're flying in from around the world trying to study and say, how did this happen? And the farmers would say, well, before revival, and the scientists would say, no, 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 we're, we're not interested in your sociological and your religious phenomena. We want to know what happened agriculturally. You don't understand. We're not interested in this Christianity stuff. And the farmers would say, you don't understand because this stuff is the product of this stuff. There's a promise in Scripture that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, I will heal their land. And the healing of the land literally produced this abundance of fruit. It's an amazing thing. Conversely, you can look at places in the earth that have dried up. When, when man is not a good steward of the earth, and your moral activity affects your stewardship of the earth. When, men, when mankind sins, it affects the earth. I'll never forget, I've, I've shared this before, but the first time I went to Korea, we went to the DMZ and you stood in this observation deck in South Korea. And South Korea is a beautiful place. I mean, it is high tech. We look, we're like backward compared to Koreans. I mean, there was more technology on my toilet seat in my hotel than I have in my whole house I don't know what all those buttons were for, but I mean, this is a high-tech place. And you stand on the observation deck in South Korea, and you look into North Korea, and this lush landscape, and then there's the, the line that goes into North Korea, and it was like scorched earth. It was brown and baked. And there was one city you could see off in the distance, had this massive flag, but at night they would flip a switch and it was obvious that it was a shell of a building that just had a huge floodlight in the bottom and they would turn on the lights so they would light up this skyscraper to make it appear as though they had this state-of-art city that was unoccupied except by a few caretakers. And other than that, it was just baked earth. And I've never seen such a vivid picture of a cursed land. And it's because of 
those that carry authority in that land, how they've pushed God out and sinned against nature itself and killed their own people. And it's affected the earth. All of creation is longing for the sons of God to be revealed. So it goes on, it says, all of creation is groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So it says that there's a global groan. The world, the earth is groaning. Nature is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. Then Paul says we are groaning and we're in anticipation for the fullness of that which we've already tasted a measure of. So we, we have the, the first fruits, the token, the first, the first taste of all that we're going to get in salvation. And we're groaning for the fullness. We've, we've been ruined by the foretaste and we can never be satisfied until we eat it all. Then we, we have all that we've been called to. And so then he says a third groan. Look at this. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who, who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait in for it patient, with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So we have these three groans going on. There's the groan of creation. There's the groan of man, and there's the groan of the Spirit of God himself living within us. All in anticipation, this, this groaning, and it's really an expression of what Paul calls here in the ESV, futility, or what the NIV and other translations refer to as frustration. And what I want to talk about this morning is frustration is your friend. Frustration is your friend. We did a series a few months back on the Spirit of God and, and uh, looking at different facets of the Spirit. And one of the things we talked about is, is that if you're going to have a solid biblical pneumatology, a theology of the Spirit, pneumatology is the study of the Spirit from a theological perspective, if you're going to have a solid biblical pneumatology, you are going to have to get comfortable with tension. One of the primary uh, components to a, a biblical pneumatology is what theologians calls, call the eschatological tension of the already and the not yet. That's just a 50 cent phrase for saying we have the beginnings but not the end and it frustrates us. We've tasted and it's ruined us for the ordinary but yet we haven't broken into all that God has for us. And so to resolve that, a lot of people try to reduce their theology, reduce the Bible to one extreme or the other. Either we have it all now, and, and it's this, this idea of a, you know, our head in the sand, pretending that we have everything's all together now, or we only look at it as some futuristic thing, and we re re resign ourselves. It's a theology of resignation that we live in defeat, and someday we'll be delivered. And that neither one of those are biblical theology. The fact is, we're living in the tension of the already and the not yet. And we've got to maintain that tension in our life. Let me back up a little bit and approach it from a different angle. When I became pastor of Heartland, God began to speak to me about something that was an entirely new concept to me. 
And that was the idea of pastoring my own heart, of stewarding my heart. Now, the Arrowwoods, Rick, Rick will always often tease me about my terminology and, and uh, tease me about pastoring my heart and stewarding my heart. But I use that terminology very specifically because God began to deal with me that if I'm going to be a man in pursuit of, a, pursuit of an awakening in the Midwest, which I am, that's what I live for. If that's what I'm going to live for, then I'm going to have to learn to steward my heart. I'm going to have to learn to pastor my heart. I'm going to have to learn to be comfortable with tension and maintain the pull on both ends. What do I mean by that? We have to learn to be comfortable and maintain two equally equal drives in our life. We've got to learn to live between gratitude for what we have experienced while fueling hunger for more. If you completely live in gratitude, then you can, it can breed apathy in your life because you feel like, hey, I have everything I need. And the fact is, God will introduce frustration in your life. And let, let's define frustration. God will thwart the very desire he awakens in your life. Okay? God will awaken a hunger in your life, and then he himself will thwart the complete fulfillment of that desire. For a season. Because God is doing something in your life through that frustration. Paul is saying that God subjected the world to frustration. And as long as we live in the world, we are subject to frustration. And it's intentional on God's end. And I'm here to tell you this morning, frustration is your friend. And if you try to completely resolve the frustration of the Christian life, you will either fall into apathy on the one side or despair on the other. Let me say it again. You'll fall into apathy on the one side or despair on the other. You see, gratitude without hunger will create apathy in our life. We lack drive because we're just celebrating what we already have. And the Lord began to deal with me about having to pastor my own heart in this and, and maintaining the tension, not falling into either ditch. Because as, as God wants to pull his people along, we are the, we are the mechanism, the, the church is the, the toolbox by which God brings breakthrough into human history, okay? If God wants to invade human history, he's going to do it through you and I. That's how he operates, but he doesn't just do that with us. It's, it's not like we don't have a part to play. We need to be engaged in this thing. It's not just the spirit groaning, it's us groaning. There's this partnership, this frustration we enter into. And so we've got to stay engaged. And so we, we need to be grateful for what he's doing, but not to the negation of hunger for more. And I, I remember when God began to pour out upon us, even back in 2003, 2004, I, there were times where I, I felt this, this weird tension in my heart. I was so grateful for what God was doing, but yet I wanted more and I felt guilty about asking God for more like I was some ungrateful kid. I felt like the kid who got all these great presents on Christmas morning and set them aside and said, but is there any more? But God wants us to want more. He, he's looking for a people who will partner with him and say, God, we want everything that you have for us. Yeah. 
We're looking, we, we want to partner with you in the realization of every dream within your heart for planet Earth. He's got to have some human partnership. And that demands that we have a hunger that we stir within us all the time. We cannot afford to let our hunger die down while we're grateful for what we already have. Does that make sense? But conversely, we cannot get so hungry that we lose sight of what we already have. Because you can focus so much on the problem that you lose sight of the answers you've already received. You can focus so much on what you don't have that you lose sight of what you do have. And rather than breeding apathy, it'll breed despair, which really lands, lands you in the same place. You lose your drive. So the secret to the Christian Heart, the, the secret to staying engaged in this thing called the kingdom of God and partnering with heaven to see heaven invade earth. The secret to that is to fuel both fires simultaneously. Always be doing a, a, a list of the things you're grateful for. We get into worship and we cry out and we, we worship him. We're so grateful for what he's done. But what worship will always lead us to, true worship will cause you to bump into his heart. You'll pick up his desires and you'll begin to pray them back to him. It's what Mike Bickle, the phrase that he coined, or he's at least made popular, harp and bowl. Harp is worship and gratitude for what he's already done. But then the bowl of incense, it's, it's taken out of the book of Revelation. The elders around the throne had, had a harp and a bowl. And the bowl was the intercession of the saints. And the harp was the worship that they were uh, lifting to the throne. It's fascinating to me. That continues on in heaven. What we're bumping into here in worship is, is not just a temporary occupation. That's going to continue on into eternity. We're going to continue to worship, and I would, make, I would propose to you we are also going to continue to intercede because God still has purposes locked within his infinite heart that you and I don't even have any inkling of yet. But as we worship him, then we, we begin to release our heart to him. We, be, we begin to release his heart back to him in, in intercession. And that demands that we are not satisfied with what we have. But we're crying out for the more while we're grateful for what we already have. And it's essential that we, we feel these two drives within the human heart. And they seem at odds with each other. Again, it feels like if I'm... If I'm Grateful for what I have, it seems ungrateful to ask for more. But if I'm so hungry for more that I lose sight of what God has already done, it'll create despair. Because my appealing to God for more is rooted in a history with God that he's already come through in the past. And so Paul says that we were saved in this hope. Hope is the environment in which we're born again. Hope is the atmosphere of the Christian life. We're to live there. And you've got to keep hope alive in your heart. Hope is that motivator to continue in the fight. But your hope must not quench your hunger. You see, there are believers today that are so hopeful for what God has done or what God has promised that they lack 
the drive to intercede for that to come about. I'm, let me put it this way. I, I've, I've got a concern right now. I believe this next election is very, very important for our nation. And there have been a lot of prophets who have prophesied about this next election. Some going back as far as 8, 10, 12 years ago before the election. The danger is this, that the prophecy that is meant to provoke us to intercession can in actuality put us to sleep. Prophecy can cause us to be apathetic, thinking, well, God's already told us the outcome. But we need to understand from Scripture, prophecy, whether of judgment or prophecy of blessing, neither are inevitabilities. They're invitations to contend with him to produce his purposes in the earth. We see it with Moses. When God told Moses, he said, leave me alone that my anger may burn. I'm going to destroy Israel and make a whole new nation out of you. It's no longer going to be the nation of Israel. It's going to be the nation of Mo. And Moses hears that and he, he sees a crack in the door. He realizes that he has to leave God alone in order for God to judge Israel. So rather than obey what God said, he looked behind, he heard the heart behind the words, and he stayed in the pocket of intercession. And rather than destroying Israel, which God already told him, it wasn't like Moses had to pray and say, was that a word from the Lord? Did I, you know, was that, was that prophecy? I'm going to weigh that prophecy against the Bible. No, he heard it out of God's own mouth, speaking to God face to face. God told him, I am going to destroy Israel. But Moses stayed in the pocket praying and God changed his mind. God relented and preserved the nation of Israel. The same is true of pro prophecies of blessing. Just because you have a prophecy over your life doesn't necessarily mean that that prophecy is going to come about. Paul says, and I want to say it's 1 Timothy chapter 1. It might be 2 Timothy. Paul said, I want to remind you. He says to Timothy, I want to remind you of the prophecies along with the instructions. Note that. I want to remind you of the prophecies along with the instructions so that by them you may war a good warfare. Paul is saying that you take the promises of God and every promise has an instruction with it. In other words, you, there's God's part. God said, these are my intentions. I'm promising you this. This is what I'm going to do. But there's a part that we got to play. There's some instructions. There's our part to play. And if we do our part, God will do his part and his purposes will be established. That's called a prophecy. It's a prophecy. It's a promise. But it's not an inevitability. It's an invitation to cooperate with heaven. And I'm real concerned that much of the body of Christ has been lulled to sleep by prophetic words. Rather than stirred to action, we've assumed that their, God's purposes will be inevitable in this nation. And if that's your line of thinking, if you think that God's will is inevitably fulfilled, then you have... You've destroyed the whole concept of sin because sin literally means to be contrary to God's will. And if God's will is already done, that always done, then there's no such thing as sin in the earth. The fact is, there's a whole lot of things that are done that are not God's will. And that's why we exist. We're down here to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when we hear these prophetic words, we need to pick up those words and begin to pray them 
into reality. We need to partner with God. And so we need to maintain this tension as a believer. See, the spiritual frustration is birthed by us, uh, by hope awakening, that there's hope for the future. But then that not, not just happening as a matter of course. It, just, it doesn't just happen. It, is, it doesn't come about easily. There's a thwarting of that purpose. And if we will contend with that, that, that frustration is actually the fuel of intercession. If you are not frustrated, you won't pray. You may praise, but you won't pray. Frustration is always a component in intercession. There's different measures. Paul is speaking of an extreme measure here where there's just this groan, this travail of the human spirit and of the Holy Spirit within, asking God to move. But the fact is, frustration is always a component in intercession. There's hope. That's why you pray. If you were hopeless, if you were in despair, you would say, why pray? It doesn't matter anyway. But you also pray because you're dissatisfied with the present. You're feeling like what I have, what I'm seeing, this situation is is not all that God intended. There's more for us. And so that hunger and that hope mix to create a frustration which becomes the fuel to intercession, which is God's method of producing breakthrough in the earth. But you and I are responsible to maintain that balance in our own heart. Hunger and hope. Hope and hunger. And if we don't maintain them, we'll become apathetic and distracted on the one side or in despair and give up our spiritual drive on the other. So I want to challenge you this morning. Where, what, which is the one that you're struggling with right now? Are you struggling with apathy, a lack of hunger? Or are you struggling with despair, a lack of hope? We need to stir up both of these twin drives within our spirit because frustration is our friend. Frustration is the way that God does a work in us so he can do a work through us. Scripture is very clear that there's, God, is, God is always concerned about two fronts in, in war strategy, military strategy, they try not to fight on too many fronts simultaneously. That's why Hitler lost World War II because he tried to take on too many fronts simultaneously. And he thinned out his, his troops and ended up being, being defeated. And it was probably the prayers of the saints that caused him to arrogantly try to fight on too many fronts simultaneously. You and I need to realize anytime we are, we're, we're living, we're battling on two fronts simultaneously all the time. There's the things that we're looking at all the time. We're looking externally at the situations we're wanting God to change. It might be breakthrough in your finances, your marriage, maybe salvation for your children. It might be that you're carrying a burden for our nation and you're very concerned about the direction the United States of America is going and you're carrying a burden for that. That's the external front of the battle. And we invest our prayers crying out to God for change in those things. But there's also an internal battle, an internal front that we're warring on. And that is the crucial one. And that is the front upon which the external battle uh, is decided. 
The internal battle is your attitude towards God in the midst of the frustration, in the midst of the disappointment. The internal battle has to be won. When Paul's talking, he said, he said the, we're subjected to frustration, but this, this suffering, this frustration we're experiencing now is working in us a glory that will far outweigh the suffering, right? So what he's talking about is there's this circumstance, external circumstance. It might be very near and dear to you. It might be with your family. And there's this situation you're crying out to God for. You're crying out for breakthrough. But God says he's going to use what's happening around you and to you to do a work in you because the suffering that you're experiencing will create a glory in you that will far outweigh the suffering around you. What he's telling us is that God's value system, he is more concerned what happens in you and your heart posture towards him than he is what's happening in your circumstances. Now you say, well, that isn't very comforting. Well, it's a key to the victory. Because if you will posture your heart right, if you can win the internal battle, I'm telling you, it's only a matter of time before the external battle begins to move. But what happens is, is because we don't recognize frustration as our friend, make no mistake about it, God is the one who awakens desire and then thwarts desire. Because he is, he is more concerned with merely changing your circumstances. He wants to change you. While he's working on the circumstances, he's going to use the circumstances to work on you. And if we don't recognize that, we get bitter and offended and distracted by the circumstances and we lose the internal battle and forfeit the victory of the external one. So if we can realize that frustration is our friend, that God awakened desire, one of the primary purposes of the Spirit of God is to awaken that desire. The Spirit himself, in Ephesians chapter 1, twice, is called a down payment. He's called a token. He's called the first fruits of our experience. You know what a down payment is? It's when you're going you're gonna to go buy a house. They want so much money down that is irrefundable. You're going to go and you're non-refundable. You're going to put that money down as a guarantee that you're going to come up with the rest. And the, the logic is that nobody's going to waste that much money without coming through. So then they know, I can take this house off the market. I don't have to worry about selling anymore. I don't have to worry about finding a buyer because somebody already put up a boatload of money and they're not just going to walk away from that. And even if they do, I win. Now I can just get another buyer and walk away with their down payment. That's the kind of logic. And Paul utilizes that in Ephesians chapter 1 saying, the Spirit of God is the down payment. He's the foretaste. God has given us his spirit as a guarantee of the fullness. One of the greatest pictures in scripture of this in, uh, in regards to the spirit is when you look at the life of Joseph. You remember Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. Somebody needs to make a good movie on this. Talking about the arts. I mean, th this, this, the story of Joseph is would be a, such a great movie if someone made it right. So he's sold into slavery by his brothers. 
He's put in the pit. He thinks they're joking, you know. Man, they're always razzing him. And come on, guys, let me out. And finally, they haul him out and they sell him. And it dawns on him the cruelty. They're laughing in his face as he's being carried away in shackles. Can you imagine the woundedness of this boy's heart? The hatred that was trying to take root in his heart. And he's in Egypt, and he's, he's, because of his character, he's elevated to leadership in Potiphar's house. Then his wife has eyes for him, and he refuses her advances. And so, so then he's wrongly accused, and now he's in prison. He went, went from slavery, now he's in prison. And again, he gets elevated, and he's, he's serving in a, a ranking position within the prison. And he ministers to two men, and it's a tremendous story. He goes from being a prisoner to the second most powerful man in the world in one afternoon. But this is like 15 years after his brothers have sold him into slavery. He left as a skinny 15-year-old boy. He's now a 30-year-old man with one of those weird Egyptian beards and eye makeup and the hat, you know, and he's, you know, they can't recognize him. And famine hits, and Joseph has been placed on the throne for such a time as this, and he looks out, and his brothers haven't changed as much, and he recognizes them. He is now in the position to get vengeance. What a story. I bet I could get in the weeds on this. We've got to be careful. I've got to stay on point here. So what happens is Joseph, of course, finally reveals himself and his brothers are shocked. Can you imagine in that moment, the, <laughs> their minds were blown and they were terrified. And Joseph says, no, God, God, God ordained this. What you meant for bad, God meant for good. And he said, now go back and tell dad that I'm alive. And it says, he said, now load up these donkeys and these carts with all these supplies, these riches, the, the fancy clothing and the food. And this is a time of famine where the whole world is starving and all this money. And, it, and, and they go in this caravan and the brothers reach the dad first and Jacob is well along in years. And it says that when they told him, dad, the guy that's been playing head games with us, it's Joe. Joe is still alive. And it says, Jacob did not believe them until he saw the carts. And the carts were like a down payment of the wealth that awaited them in Egypt. And when the carts started arriving, they were provisions for the journey, but it was also an indication of the wealth that awaited them. And it says this in, in the book of Genesis, it says, when Jacob saw the carts, his heart was revived, and he said, I believe. Those carts are like the Spirit of God. It's provisions from the kingdom that we're marching towards because our brother sits on the throne, and we're going to make the journey. And so what did he do? He sent provisions to us. It's a down payment. It's a foretaste. It's the token of what's to come. And it's to revive our heart and, and awaken hope within us. But we don't become so satisfied with the provisions on the cart that we just set up camp in the wilderness and live off the provisions. It's ruined us. We look at what we've gotten and we say, we've got to see the rest. We've got to see all the riches of Egypt. Am I losing it here? And so... The carts are like that provision. God wants to awaken hope this morning. And I felt this burden for our church as a congregation, but also for our nation, that this is a time right now, 
in our nation's history that we have to maintain that tension of hunger and hope. We've got to keep that tension alive. And whichever side you're being pulled towards, you need to start throwing coal in the other fire. You've got to keep hope alive. We hope because God is good. But we've got to keep our hunger alive because although God is good, things are not good enough right here. And we have got to have a a move of God in our nation. God has to move in the United States or we will cease to be a nation. We need a move of God. So I'm going to ask you to stand and I want to pray over you this morning. Frustration is your friend because without frustration, there is no intercession. Frustration is a mixture of hunger and hope. It'll cause you to have hope because he's so good in the past that you can take that experience and say he's going to be good in the future. But there's got to be a hunger in your, your heart for more. God has not called us to just worry about you know, our, our little household and as long as we're taken care of, then we're good. We are called to be carriers of the kingdom. We're called to be intercessors that stand in the gap for this nation, for our community, for our neighbors. And we need to be hungry for more. So Father, I just thank you, Lord, for each one of these this morning. Lord, I ask that you would release by your spirit a wave of divine dissatisfaction. Lord, we don't, we're not trying to avoid the frustration. We're not trying to reconcile the tension this side of heaven. Lord, we're asking that that tension would motivate us deeper in you, Lord. Lord, I ask God this morning for those who are struggling with hopelessness and despair. Lord, I ask that you would touch them by your spirit. Send the carts this morning. And Lord, those who have been so blessed that they're in danger of being apathetic and disengaged and simply enjoying all that you've done without a hunger or desire for more without a desire to see it spread. Lord, I'm asking that you would stir them this morning. Lord, I ask that frustration would become the fuel. And Lord, that you would fuel the altar of intercession in this church. Lord, let it rise. Lord, as we go in to awaken the dawn next weekend, Lord, I ask that you would plant a seed deep in the soil of Iowa. God, help us to get in touch with the groan of creation, the groan within our own spirits, Lord. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.